0: This morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter six and seven. You know, church, we read the headlines and we don't know what to do with them. Our stomachs turn as we we read about unthinkable cruelty and violence and injustice. The story of Noah begins with a flood of human corruption and violence, and it's so pervasive. It's so deep that all of humanity is caught up in it and guilty of it. And what we discover in the story of Noah is that that flood of human corruption and violence, it breaks God's heart. So how does the brokenhearted God of creation intervene? And how does that intervention impact our lives today? That's the story that we're going to explore today here in Genesis 6 and seven and so let's just pray father we we ask that you give us humility as we read this story there'll be lots of questions that fill our hearts and minds but we pray that lord you would bring to the surface those things that are most important for us that the 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 meaning of this story the truths that you have meant for us to grasp about you and about ourselves would would be grasped today we pray Lord, help us to see you in this story in in ways maybe we never have. Uh, Lord, this story isn't easy. (laughs) This story is difficult. It's painful to walk through, and yet it's filled with mercy and hope as well. And so we just pray that you help us. But just give us this posture, Lord, we pray, of, of, of a desire to learn and receive all that you would have for us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Genesis chapter six. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said to, uh, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim we on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Okay, three three points here this morning. One, the flood of human corruption and violence. Number two, the flood of God's grief and justice. And number three, the promise of God's favor and mercy. And so number one, the flood of human corruption and violence. Now, this story is one of the best known stories in world literature. It's dramatic in every way. It communicates truth that we need to hear but we would rather not face if we were honest. The story is so offensive to some that they use it to argue against God while others paint pictures of Noah and the ark on their, their baby's wall in their nurseries. But like the other narratives in the book of Genesis, it, it will stir a whole lot of questions in us. But here, we need to ask, what does it say about God and about man? From the beginning of this series, we've, we've, we've said, hey, these stories are a window into God's heart, and they are a mirror that reflects our own. The story of Noah has a context. It's important that we know what comes before it. Immediately after the tragedy of Genesis chapter three, we witness humanity's like downward spiral into sin. Selfish ambition, pride, arrogance, violence, hatred, murder, Cain and Abel. Remember Lamech, his arrogant boasting of his many wives like they're his property and his vengeance on others, boasting in his violence and murder. And then in Genesis 5, we haven't read it, we're not going to read it, but we're given this list of the generations of Adam up till Noah. And much can be said about this lineage, I encourage you to read it. But what I want us to see in Genesis 5 is that there's a clear refrain, a clear pattern that's given. It says, so-and-so fathered someone and they lived this many years, and then what does it say? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died no matter how long they lived, and he died. It's the repeated refrain of Genesis 5. What God said in the garden of Genesis 3 is coming true. The day you eat, you will die. And death is a bitter reminder of sin's presence and power. Creation is broken. It's undone. But there's this little whisper of hope in, in verse 24 of chapter 5, and it's an announcement that interrupts everything. It, it speaks that this way. It, death's victory is broken up. It's an announcement that should stand out to us. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God. It's a life of consistent fellowship with God and faithful devotion in the midst of of all the death and the brokenness. It says Enoch walked with God. The New Testament uses this kind of language when speaking of our devotion to the Lord. Walking in love, walking in light, right? Walking in the way of Jesus. It's a lifestyle of fellowship and devotion. You know, oftentimes my prayer is simply this. Walk with me, God, and teach me to walk with you. When I got nothing else, walk with me, God. I need to know your presence and your nearness and teach me to walk with you. Enoch found life in the midst of death. Death, for Enoch, did not have the last word. The introduction to the story of Noah continues then in chapter six, in verses one and two. What's happening in these verses? It's it's kind of like watching a movie where we realize at a particular scene, we're like, oh, do we need to turn this off? Because this is weird, all right? I don't know if you caught it. <laughs> I don't know if you, you had enough coffee, but this, this section of Scripture is, is odd, to say the least. Who are the sons of God being referred to here? Are they spiritual beings? Uh, the language seems to lean that way. If so, they have no business getting into sexual relationship with human beings. Are they powerful men, rulers, and kings who, who might have been under the influence or, or power of demons who use their authority and power to get whatever woman they want? Could be, that's another interpretation. This, this union, whether it was spiritual beings, with women, or powerful men under demonic influence with women, this union produced the Nephilim, giants, mighty men of renown, champions, or warriors of old. Now, don't become overly distracted with who the sons of God are. I know it's hard not to. And don't become overly distracted by this strange word, Nephilim, that means giants, and you're like, what is going on here? We don't want to miss the point. This, this account... These few verses that are an introduction to the story of Noah, it involves sexual assault and abuse. And it's wrong. And it's perverse. And it's corrupt. Listen, we've all read the stories. We've, we've read the, the news even recently of men and women with money and authority taking advantage of young women with no power. And our stomachs turn, isn't they? and they should. This perverse story... Is dark. It's gross, and it brings to a culmination the story of resistance to God's vision for the world. Remember, the world is spiraling out of control here. This downward spiral of sin and violence and corruption, and this story highlights that. In chapter six, verse five, the conclusion of the matter. It's clear. Uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a summary of the world's condition. Here is the flood of human corruption and violence and evil. It's in full effect, full measure. And its source is the human heart. Look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. The same verb is used in verse 11, 12, two times in verse 12, and then again in 13 to drive the point home to us that the world was corrupt. This word corrupt, meaning devastation, corruption. That's the repeated refrain of verses 11 through 13. It's the defining attribute. We are broken. Humanity is ruined and destroyed and corrupt. The idea is that humanity has corrupted themselves. Therefore, God declares that they are corrupt or destroyed. In verse 3 of chapter 6, it's as if God's saying, okay, enough of this. 120 years and that's it. Is this the length of human life? What it will be now? People seem to be living a lot longer, so is he reducing human life down to this span of time? Or is this the time period until God's judgment in response to this corruption and evil, to this flood of corruption and evil? I think, I think that's what it is. And, and it, it expresses God's patience. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it speaks this way, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So Peter finds it important to hold high the patience of God in the days of Noah. God's actions are measured. They're measured. They're never careless. Remember, this is a window into God's heart and character. It's a mirror that reflects our own. It's hard to look into sometimes, but it's important that we do it. So the first thing that we see here in this story, this hard-to-read story, is the flood of human corruption and violence. It's in full effect. Second, this flood of human corruption and violence, it meets the flood of God's grief and justice. And so as humanity steadily sinks into deeper darkness and moral confusion and corruption, what is God's response? It's grief. Sorrow. He's broken hearted. You know, when we read Scripture, it's easy to skip over how God feels about things. But if we do it, we'll miss. We'll miss out on getting to know the God of creation, the God of the Bible. You know, whatever ideas we have about God, whatever ideas we carry in our hearts and in our minds about God, we need to hold up to Scripture and see if if, if it matches what Scripture says about God, if it's actually true about Him. And so here we're given insight into the complexity of God's heart and his thoughts. And he experiences pain and hurt. You know what this tells me? It tells me a lot about God. It tells me that he isn't indifferent. He isn't indifferent to my sin. He isn't indifferent to your sin. Here he isn't indifferent to mankind's rebellion. Not at all. And maybe it surprises you that God's response to this flood of corruption and violence is grief, that that's his first response It might surprise you that the Bible presents God this way, so brokenhearted, grieving over creation and rebellion. You know, I'll be honest, I've struggled with times, at times, with God almost just coming across as as begging or desperate or unable to turn things around, get people's attention. I've struggled. I've also struggled with how. Just broken, God seems to be, in situations, and I'm just like, just why don't you just fix it? I think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. If you remember this story, Jesus is crying. He's weeping over Jerusalem, knowing uh, their hardness, the callousness of their hearts, and that they will reject him. I remember reading this and thinking, come on. Come on now, Jesus. You you, you knew that they were going to reject you. You know where you're going. You're going to the cross. You came to die. What's with these tears? And I remember, and and there's there have been a few times in my life where God has really spoken in this way to me. Valerie was sleeping, and, and I remember just wrestling with God, reading this passage. And I remember just him speak to my heart, Darren, do you think you have more compassion than I do? It was early on in pastoral ministry. It was a good word for me to hear from the Lord. Darren, do you think that you have more compassion than I do on the, on the lost, on, on those who have rebelled against me? Darren, do you think that you're more brokenhearted than I am? We're seeing the complexity of God's heart. He's a broken-hearted God. He's grieved. But he's also determined to do something about this corruption and evil. He is just. He is right. He is holy in all his ways. And he determines to get in the way. He will stand against this flood of corruption and violence. He will. He's going to do something about it. So here is the just, the deserved judgment on humanity's sin. God's response, and we see it again, verse seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now we might feel uncomfortable reading that. We might feel unsettled and disturbed. I feel all of the above. And it's okay if we do feel that way. It's meant to be unsettling. It's meant to be sobering. It's meant to get our attention. Now questions come to mind. Was this a global or local flood? How did the animals arrive? How did the Lord actually speak to Noah in this time? Why were possums let on the ark? That's my question. Why possums? No possums. I wish wish they were just left out. Anyway. I know y'all got your animals that you wish were not on the ark. (laughs) Narratives, though, throughout Scripture, they they don't provide us with all the details we want, right? But they provide us with enough details to communicate the point of the narrative. And that should be our desire to, to know, well, what's the point of the narrative? God answered back with a flood of his own. It's one that brought a deserved judgment on the flood of human corruption. but he didn't stop there. Number three, the promise of God's favor and mercy. Verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is determined to establish a covenant with this man and his family. And let's read on in in chapter seven and see what happens. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and uh, the three wives of his sons went with them, entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life." And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord, the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I said that number three is the promise of God's favor and mercy. God is holy. He is just. And he must judge sinners. And yet here we see that he abounds in mercy and he remains committed to his plan He's committed to that promise whispered in Genesis 3 that the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, would one day crush the head of the serpent. One man, Noah, and his family were carried through the waters of judgment. Verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is grace, this is undeserved blessing. And so, what do we learn about the man Noah? Well, back in chapter 6, verse 9, we learn that Noah is a righteous man. He's morally upright. He walks in innocence. He's blameless. He's not perfect in all his ways, but it emphasizes his acceptance before God in the midst of a corrupt generation. Noah walked with God. He walked with God. It signals Intimacy. It's a life of consistent fellowship with God and faithful devotion. Do you remember? Just as Enoch found life in the midst of death, so too Noah finds life in the midst of a culture of death. And he finds a shelter from the fierce storm of God's deserved punishment on sin. I want you to imagine how difficult it was for Noah to live a life of devotion to God in the face of such corruption. Just imagine. 2 Peter 2, verse 5, talks of Noah this way. He was a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. Imagine the mockery and the disdain. Imagine the attacks, the accusations, the scorn, the persecution. And yet, even in the midst of that, a herald of righteousness, a man of obedience that to... Everyone around him seemed out of his mind. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 gives us more insight into the man Noah. It says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What we learn from Noah is that what he did, he did by faith. He was looking to the living God. He responded with obedience. He was a man of faith. This ark that he constructed in obedience was was visible evidence of, of Noah's faith. It was a visible evidence to his faith to his surrounding unbelieving and scuffing neighbors. The side of the ark being constructed was a challenge to all those around them. It forced them to face the truth of what Noah is declaring. It also forced them to reject it. They came face to face with truth and they had their decisions to make. Listen, we too live in a, a corrupt, wicked generation. Philippians tells us that we, as we hold on to the truth of the gospel, we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and corrupt generation. As We, we don't grumble or complain, but instead we, we hold on to the truth of the light of who Christ is and the truth of the gospel. We hold that up for the world to see and the beauty of who Jesus is. We, we stand as lights Stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. That's our privilege. That's our honor. In chapter 6, verse 18, there's the first mention of covenant in Scripture. But I will establish my covenant with you. That's what God tells Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. God is committing himself to Noah. Noah. He's committing to, to, to preserve Noah's life. He's committing to bring him safely through the flood. He's committing to show mercy to Noah. Now, a covenant, it's important for us to define this. It's a treaty between two parties. It's, uh, it signifies binding relationship. You could think of it more like a promise. There's obligation, there's commitment, right? We, we think of covenant relationship, we might think of marriage This is a covenant that we're making, husband and wife. I'm committing my life to you in the eyes of God, in the presence of friends and family. We're entering a covenant agreement, a binding relationship. God is making a covenant with Noah. In chapter 7, the first few verses of this chapter, it's as if God is saying, okay, here's what you need to do, and here's what I will do. And then there's instruction given, and obedience is expressed by Noah. Noah. This is a a binding relationship. It carries such meaning and significance. And we're going to explore uh, the meaning of covenant much more next week as as we we talk about the second half of this story of Noah. But here's what we need to know right now, what's being communicated. The only way that Noah is going to survive what's coming his way, the only way that Noah will get through this storm, this flood, is by God's promise-making, covenant-keeping mercy. It's the only way. The only way that Noah is going to get through is because of God's faithful commitment and undeserved grace. This covenant anticipates another covenant that will come to to Abraham. And we can trace the story of, of covenants given, promises made by God to his people that ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. Noah and family went into the ark as God commanded And it says, and the Lord, Yahweh himself, shut him in. Who is this God of creation, willing to condescend, to stoop down and humble himself this way? So concerned for the well-being of this one family that he himself shuts the door. Did they hear a whisper? You're going to be okay. I got you. Noah's name comes from the word that means rest. The floodwaters break upon the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, do you remember? The Spirit of God was hovering over the dark and chaotic waters. So here, those chaotic waters are unleashed. It's as if creation itself is coming undone. Chapter 7, verse 24, and the waters prevailed. That word prevailed is repeated in chapter 7. The water has prevailed on the earth, just let loose, the restraints removed. And so there they were, hidden in the ark, a family just holding on to the promise of God's mercy. Church, here we are. Here we are, hidden in Christ Jesus, holding on to the promise of God's mercy. And the floodwaters of God's deserved wrath and judgment had been poured out on Jesus instead of you and me. Jesus faced those waters on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. This story of Noah <laughs> it's very relevant we look at it and we, 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 we wince and we think, oh, this is hard. Yes, it's hard, but it's important that we see this flood of human corruption and violence that's in full effect is, is, is first met by God's grief and brokenheartedness. But also we see God's holiness and justice. He won't have it. He stands against it. And he brings judgment, a deserved judgment, but a painful judgment. And as Noah and family find safety in the ark, what a picture for us, for those who are hidden in Christ Jesus. We see that in the New Testament, that word, we're hidden, we're in Christ Jesus. This imagery of, of being safe, of being preserved, of being found. And it's true. When you think of Jesus hanging on the cross, why did he go there? He received upon himself the flood of God the Father's deserved judgment on our sin. And by faith in Jesus, we're hidden. We're kept from this judgment that we deserve. No judgment for us, it's spent on Jesus. We're hidden in Christ. The promise, the preservation and safety and rescue, the promise of relationship. by faith, by trust, by rest. In Jesus, we find safety and refuge, have you? Jesus talked of his death as baptism. He talked that way. Look with me in Luke. In Luke chapter 12, Verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus knew that he had come, he was born to die, that he would be baptized in his death, that his death itself was referred to as baptism, as going into the waters. You see, in the flood account, The wicked die and the righteous are saved. You see that? But in Jesus, the wicked are saved and the only truly righteous one dies. He'll go on to bring warning and use the story of Noah this way. And I think it's important that we know how Jesus uses the story of Noah. In Luke 17, verse 26, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so Jesus uses the story of Noah as a story of warning to sober his hearers, to sober us, to find rest and rescue in him. Now, imagine the thoughts that were racing through Noah's head and heart as the ark tossed back and forth. Back and forth. And as the waters increased, one month on the ark, two months, three months, four months, imagine the head shaking and the wonder and the questions and the sobering reality, the judgment, the judgment upon which they found themselves floating was a reminder that they were the victims of another flood altogether. They were the victims of the flood of God's mercy and love. The same God who made a covenant with Noah invites you into one today. He established this covenant through Jesus. And the story of Noah, it begins with this flood of human corruption and violence. It's so pervasive and deep that all humanity is caught up in it and guilty of it. Church, we are guilty. The only way to escape this flood of human corruption and violence is to find rest in Jesus. To own up to the fact that, yeah, we've contributed to that flood. And I need rescue. This flood of human corruption and violence, if we remember this truth, it broke God's heart. And let that color the rest of the story because I know the story is difficult. A broken-hearted God intervenes. It's met with a flood of of God's grief and justice and the promise of favor and mercy. The same is true today through Jesus Christ. The flood of human corruption and violence met with the flood of God's grief and justice. That's what happened on the cross. By faith in him, we find rest. Rescue. Deep breath. So you're going to paint that scene on the wall of your children's room? Let's decide next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this story. It's, It's not easy to read it. It's not easy to work through it, but it's important that we do. Thank you for what we see about you in this story. Thank you that we see the complexity of your heart and your, your emotions, and th- it's, it's important for us to see the depth of your grief and brokenness over sin, but also your justice. and how now in Jesus <laughs> you remain just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Him. Our sins. The flood of judgment that's deserved on them is spent on him and so help us to see the beauty of your saving grace and mercy. Help us all as we leave this story to be sobered by it, humbled by it, humbled by what we see, moved by it and that we would draw closer to you and long to walk with you in delighting you, like Noah. In Christ's name, amen.